0: welcome to the cancer care connect workshop at this time all participants are in the listen only mode during the workshop you will hear from our panels of expert speakers we will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation instructions will be given at that time if anyone should require assistance during the workshop please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone as a reminder this workshop is being recorded i would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sadai, so, And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Coping with the Stresses of Caregiving when Your Loved One Has mantle Cell Lymphoma. And this is Part 2 of Living with Mantle Cell Lymphoma. Um, and today's program is supported by BiGene and Pharmacyclics. LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. I really want to thank them for their support of this series, um, and it's an important one, and it's one that we really um, appreciate being able to offer. Now, we have um, many of you on the call today. There's over 124 participants on this program today, and you come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from the Dominican Republic and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. And we are delighted that you've all chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now before I introduce our first speaker, I'd like to just ask you all a few questions. And um, the reason we do that is just to get a sense of what you know uh, before the program starts. Um, It will help us to tailor the programs to best meet your needs. And again, for those of you who are live streaming the call, you'll be able to see the questions as I, as I read them, and you'll be able to rate your answer. So I'm going to start with the first question. On a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the emerging treatment approaches for mantle cell lymphoma in the context of COVID-19 experience. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand how to care for a loved one with mantle cell lymphoma in the context of COVID-19 experience. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of the caregiver and challenges in communicating with the healthcare team. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now we just have two questions left. Um, I understand how to manage family, friends, partners, and traditions in the context of COVID-19. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the last question is, I understand how to practice self-care and stress management as a caregiver. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank all of you for participating in these questions. It'll help us as we plan programs in 2022, and I thank you for your um for your sharing your uh, ratings of these questions. And now I want to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Thomas Haberman. And Dr. Haberman is professor of medicine, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. And Dr. Haberman will be addressing update on the treatment of mental cell lymphoma in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, caring for your loved one with mental cell lymphoma in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, the important role of the caregiver in decision making on the healthcare team, challenges in communicating with your healthcare team, your role in adherence on weekends, holidays, and vacations, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments to increase their benefit. So technology, list of questions, follow-up care, quality of life concerns, and decision discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Haberman.
1: Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's a privilege to be here with you and your team, Ms. Sarah Paul, and all of the 124 attendees from the USA, the DR, and the UK. With regard to the update on the treatment of mantle cell lymphoma, I'd like to make the following comments. The Lymphoma Research Foundation convenes an annual meeting since since 2004, and the last one was April 2021, on mantle cell lymphoma. This brings together the international group of leaders in the field, and these provide updates and help in moving the field forward. There are four different types of networks and opportunities that you can participate in, the National Clinical Trials Network in the United States, the European Mantle Cell Network, chaired by Dr. Martin Dreiling, and then at different institutions, institutional trials and industry trials. With regard to mantle cell lymphoma, there are two major perspectives that are emerging at this time. The first is risk factors, and the second is key overall treatment strategies in previously untreated and previously treated patients in large randomized studies and then Phase two studies. With regard to this, there are two principles that are emerging and being further defined by the European Mantle Cell Network, and it goes as follows 66% of patients have classic mantle cell lymphoma, that is, nodal, extranodal, or a leukemic phase without risk factors, and 33% have risk factors. They include TP53 aberrations by mutation or immunohistochemistry, the KI67 of being greater than 30% and blastoid pleomorphic morphology. And these have significant impacts on potential outcomes of therapeutic interventions. With regard to the COVID-19 pandemic, observation in low-risk patients without bulky disease is safe and a reasonable approach, and it was defined before the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's still the case in the pandemic. The major questions on treatment strategies that are under studies and different trials and readouts that are pending, I will review. All of these approaches actually pose some risk to the development of complications of a COVID-19 infection. They include autologous stem cell transplant up front, the role of maintenance tra- maintenance rituximab versus transplant, the role of chemo therapy-free approaches with agents such as the Bruton kinase inhibitors, rituximab and venetoclax, and number four, CAR-T cell therapy. So what are the updates on the clinical trials for mantle cell lymphoma? There's a tremendous amount of data that's about to be reported in different upcoming meetings in the next 24 months on different trials. There's a trial in Europe, the Triangle Study, of 861 patients that looks at the question of a peripheral stem cell transplant and maintenance rituximab versus maintenance ibrutinib. In industry trials, the SHINE trial is a randomized study of bendamustine rituximab versus ibrutinib rituximab. The ENRICH trial looks at chemotherapy arm versus rituximab and ibrutinib, and these results are pending. In the United States, there's a very large trial, the ECOG 4151 trial, which looks at patients who are being treated ages 18 to 70 with aggressive treatment up front. And then if in remission, then clonal markers determine whether or not one is randomized to a peripheral blood blood stem cell transplant or rituximab. This study has recruited over 500 patients and it continues to accrue in the pandemic. Another study in the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group has addressed the addition of rituximab and lenalidomide after bendamustine rituximab, and these trials, this trial of 372 patients is yet to be reported. The OASIS trial is randomizing patients to rituximab and ibrutinib versus rituximab, ibrutinib, and venetoclax in older patients. Cytosine has been added to bendamustine rituximab in the RBAC regimen, and venetoclax is being added to this now. Different BTK inhibitors are under evaluation. It's a fascinating time, and on unprecedented time in this disease. Not many years ago, the median survival was three years. This has dramatically changed over time, the last five years to 10 years. And I now have patients who've lived over 12 years after relapsing after a peripheral blood stem cell transplant. In 2016, our group presented an abstract from the at the American Society of Clinical Oncology from our Mayo Clinic Lymphoma Database. And patients with mantle cell lymphoma who were enrolled on clinical trials versus not enrolled but eligible had an improved overall survival and two-year overall survival. So as far as the relapse refractory scene, much has happened. I had the privilege of being the first author of the first report of lenalidomide in relapse refractory disease back in 2009 that was approved by regulatory authorities in the United States. Then came, and not shortly and and shortly after a brutinib or a bruton kinase inhibitor, and the overall response rate was seventy percent. Imagine we now have oral agents only that patients can receive in this disease. The initial toxicities of hemorrhage and of at seven point three percent and atrial fibrillation at five point nine percent have led to other drugs in its class, and these are under evaluation, the next is acalabrutinib with a response rate of 81%, and uh, no patients had uh, atrial fibrillation. Xanabrutinib is another drug, and these, this group of drugs are more effective for treating relapse refractory lymphoma patients when used as earlier lines of therapy. The different BTK inhibitors are under evaluation in different trials, so ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, xanabrutinib, either alone or in combination. And now there's a pertabrutinib, which is a selective and reversible BTK inhibitor. After these drugs, then venetoclax has come along, and the initial response rate was 42%, but in combination much higher. And there's an ongoing phase 3 trial the sympatical trial comparing abrutinib plus venetoclax to abrutinib monotherapy interestingly and hard to believe there's even a new therapy and that is car t cell therapy which has been approved by regulatory authorities in the United States in 2021 based on results coming out of the zuma 2 trial or the where brexucab auto so was resulted in a complete remission rate of 59% and a partial remission rate of 24% in relapsed refractory patients and now these drugs are are being looked at in other randomized trials to compare with transplant and other approaches Lysocaptogene, not FD-approved, has a complete remission rate of 59%, another CAR-T cell, and we can anticipate other CAR-T cell approaches coming along. Lastly, allogeneic transplant has been recognized as an option in the previous decade with 10-year overall survival rates of about 50%. And this regimen, though, is complicated by early death rates, and graft-versus-host disease and has limited its use, and it's become more limited because of all of the other options that, that we have. So in summary, clinical trials are ongoing. We continue to learn more about the issues related to anti-CD20 antibody treatments, abrutinib, venetoclax, CAR T-cell therapy, and transplant, and we are continuing to learn about potential issues with COVID-19 essential to get vaccinated. I think to practice continued COVID-19 best practices, so mask, alcohol to the hand, six feet distancing, and then if others are potentially with cough, sneezing, and so forth, family members, don't be exposed to them if you have active disease or you're on treatment. The problem is is that the COVID-19 will not go away internationally in these upcoming months. The COVID-19 BA.2 variant is now active worldwide in recent weeks, and we're just beginning to understand what the implications are there. The important role of the caregiver in decision-making in the healthcare team is an interesting one, and one I've become more interested in over time. The caregiver is absolutely essential. You need help as the patient, emotional support, informing other family members, and helping with other decisions, that even real basic things that affect daily life, but also long-term issues. You cannot go on the journey alone. What does a caregiver need to do? I've been saying it for decades. Just show up. It's all you need to do. Also understand that it's important for caregivers and patients to understand it's harder on the spouse or child than it is on the patient, which I've always found counterintuitive, but I think is really true. And ultimately, though it's the patient, you who would make the decision. With regard to challenges in communicating with your health care team, uh the appointments, uh things have changed in the last uh since the pandemic started. There are limitation in numbers of individuals allowed on site. I think it's important to have consistency with who is present, but it's also important to rotate and rotate responsibilities. Phones and iPad devices can be brought into the room, at least in in our institution, and can be very helpful. Phone calls, contacting team members is essential, nurses and other individuals. Understand, though, that in different uh, countries and so forth, you may need permission uh, to be do this in, in the healthcare record. Lastly, there are electronic approaches known. Our electronic system, EPIC, uh, the in-basket system uh, communications are the standard. Email is an issue because it's not as secure, and there are HIPAA issues, at least in the United States. An interesting question is about your role of adherence in weekends, holidays, and vacations while on treatment, and I chaired the North Central Cancer Treatment Group Audit Committee for 15 years, was involved in National Cancer Institute guidelines, and I'll have these comments to address this question. It's essential to adhere to the specific regimen and the way it was given. But understand that all clinical trials have allowed for delays for weekends and holidays. It's not an issue with oral drugs. Vacations can be an issue because to be off of a a treatment for more than two weeks, you go off study. uh, But also, uh, most patients on clinical trials were not off for more than, than two weeks, and so. We try. I try to work very hard with families and, and schedule around things, but I also try to be suggest being restrictive about where to travel, such as outside of your country and so forth, which can make things complicated. What about guidelines to prepare for telehealth and telemedicine? Uh, it's here. How, how it's going to continue to be used I don't think is clear, but I have the following thoughts. Number one, have your device set up in a comfortable environment where you might also be able to get at your paper records or questions that you've written down. appreciate that very few of us like to look at ourselves on camera. Secondly, don't be afraid of making mistakes. No one's really an expert. I have a quote above my desk, uh, among others, which reads, an expert is a man or woman who have made all the mistakes which can be made in a very narrow field. Unquote by Niels Bohr a very famous physicist. We've all made tremendous mistakes uh, And we continue to so don't be embarrassed and don't get frustrated Thirdly, it's helpful if you're not used to using the technology To have someone with you such as a spouse or one of your children or other family members to help you If they're there have them introduce themselves because just to be talking in the background is a little uncomfortable Number four, understand that some physicians and healthcare providers go over the records carefully before others have not. We also might want to get back to it a later date with more after getting more information and, and, and understand everything might not be settled at the time. Number five, physician and healthcare providers may be going through records while on the computer while talking to you. It's common, it's appropriate. Last but not least, prepare notes and questions ahead of time. You will likely not remember your questions or comments during the visit without these notes. I've learned over the last 40 years of taking care of patients with these problems uh, through the privilege of being involved with patients from phenomenally different backgrounds and cultures that this, this is really common. What about quality of life? We've been interested in quality of life in patients through our Molecular Epidemiology Research Project on Lymphoma in the Mayo Clinic and our Sport grant for the last 20 years. We published a paper in 2018 where we followed 701 patients who filled out forms regarding quality of life. And our, my first observation is, is that quality of life at the time of initial presentation was associated with improved overall and event-free survival and aggressive lymphoma and outperformed performance score. So the better it is at the beginning, the better. The second thing we observed is that functional well-being, physical well-being, and overall quality of life was lower after initiating chemotherapy. So that's an expectation, and, and we expected this observation, but this confirmed this. But the last observation we made, I think, is really cool and really remarkable so what can you do to potentially improve your quality of life again we followed 30 3060 patients and 1371 had a third follow-up baseline health and self-administered risk factor questionnaire and what we found was that at three years there was a significant improvement in overall survival lymphoma-specific survival, and event-free survival for all histologies, so this included mantle cell, in patients studied who met or exceeded national recommended standards for age and sex with regard to physical activity recommendations, pre-diagnosis, and in patients who had a change, that is, an increase in their physical activity. So that is really one of the single most important things that you can do. You can walk, jog, bike, ride, work out exercises at home with with videos, isometrics. As things have opened up, health clubs. So get active. So in conclusion, in the end, patients with mantle cell lymphoma with a new diagnosis or relapse should be treated with the best possible options and therapeutic interventions. I'm full of significant hope for patients with lymphoma and mantle cell lymphoma and how they are managed at this point in time. Thank
0: you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hopperman. That was really outstanding and a wonderful way to start the program today, um, covering both all the updates on mental cell lymphoma and then also addressing the specific concerns of caregivers. So thank you very much. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our our next speaker is um, my colleague, Ms. Sarah Paul. and. Ms. Paul is an oncology social worker, and she's director of clinical programs at Cancer Care. And Ms. Paul will be addressing coping with the stresses of caregiving when your loved one has mental cell lymphoma, taking on the role of caregiving, coping with each day on special occasions, anniversaries, birthdays, in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, managing family, friends, and traditions in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, long-distance caregiving, and self-care and stress management suggestions and tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, um, Ms. Paul. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank
2: you, Dr. Haberman, for getting us started. I'm very excited to be here today. Like Dr. Messner said, I am the Director of Clinical Programs at Cancer Care, and over the last eight years, I've worked very closely with cancer patients and cancer caregivers individually individually, and in a group setting to provide emotional support and guidance. Thanks for being here to um, talk on such an important topic. So to start, let's talk a little bit about stress. You know, in simple terms, stress develops when you start to feel that your responsibilities are greater than the time, energy, or other resources you have to meet them. Does that sound familiar to anyone listening? You know, when when we're talking about taking on the role of caregiving, and in this case, informal caregiving, We are also talking about adapting to a new role, along with a changing relationship with your loved one. And this role change can be very challenging. As a caregiver, it's very common to put your loved one's needs before your own on a regular basis. You might struggle to identify or meet your own needs. So I'd like to take a minute um, to ask yourself a few questions um, and answer these internally, okay? How many of you listening feel that you have a good handle on balancing all of the responsibilities that you have right now as a caregiver? How many of you feel um, that you were invited or that you were asked to become a caregiver? How many of you just accepted the role of a caregiver because there were no other options? How many feel that you didn't really have a choice? How many of you are exercising regularly, getting enough sleep, eating well, How many of you are feeling burnt out, exhausted, anxious? Feeling this way is not a sign of failure, but rather a sign that your stress is increasing and you may need additional support and coping tools to manage the stress. So it is normal to experience stress, especially in this situation, but we know that chronic stress negatively impacts our ability to care for ourselves and for our loved ones. So that's why it is so important to start learning tools to manage stress to help handle caregiver responsibilities. And later on, I will be sharing some suggestions for those. Um, and so, you know, in talking about coping each day and on special occasions, um, anniversaries and birthdays, um, and especially in the context of COVID, uh, Dr. Happerman mentioned that COVID-19 is here to stay. We, we know that now that over two years into the pandemic, we have already learned to celebrate important milestones um, differently. We've had to adapt, we have found different ways and creative ways to celebrate important occasions. We've had to adjust our expectations and establish new traditions. So when we're thinking about this, um, in the context of including your loved one and really celebrating these special things, it's important to communicate openly. Ask them, how would you like to celebrate this special occasion or this birthday? You know, what are your expectations for this? Because often a patient and caregiver have different expectations. And, you know, we often do have to go to the patient and respect, of course, what their needs are. That might mean on a birthday video call that they stay on for the first 15 minutes, and then once they start feeling tired, you know, you take over the call um, while they rest, right? So we, we have to communicate. We have to adjust expectations. Um, But we also need to know that as caregivers, it is possible to maintain traditions, milestones, and special occasions. Sometimes that means just being more creative, you know, especially with throughout the pandemic, we found so many different ways to connect virtually, to share photos, memories, stories with loved ones. Um, And even I have a caregiver that I'm working with who is a long distance caregiver. And they bought um, a virtual frame for their loved one that they're caring for, and it's connected to an app that you can upload photos and videos to every day. You know, and that would that um, the pictures and videos show up in their frame, and you know they they make them feel included, and it's really it's a really nice gesture, for, especially for those that aren't there every day. Um, and so you know when we're also talking about managing these relationships, managing friends and families. Um, you know, in, in the context of COVID, as a caregiver, you have multiple jobs, and one of these jobs now is kind of being the gatekeeper or security for anyone that wants to come over to your home to visit. Um, you are now in charge of this. You're in charge of social and physical distancing. This can be incredibly stressful, especially when family or friends want to visit and they don't really um, understand or realize the pressure that you may feel about managing visitors. They might not even understand all the precautions that need to be taken. And I mentioned this already, but communication is a key to caregiving, not only communication between patient and caregiver, but communication between caregiver and support network, or caregiver and other loved ones. It's really important to let family and friends know what to expect when they visit, what precautions might need to be taken. You might want to create some guidelines for family that want or family or friends that want to visit regularly. Um, you'll want to, of course, screen or check symptoms of anyone that wants to come to visit. Now, these could be symptoms related to COVID or symptoms related to another illness, but it's important to take those precautions and if someone isn't feeling well to encourage them to visit another time when they are fully recovered. You may also wanna keep a a little basket by your front door that has hand sanitizer, um, extra clean masks for visitors. Um, You'll want to enforce good hand washing practices. And pay attention to small children who might need a little bit of additional help washing for 20 seconds with soap (laughs) Um, and we also want to of course be mindful of maintaining physical distance in the home Um, for those that go on a lot of outings it's important to have one of those emergency bags and i mean like a little to-go bag with hand sanitizer sanitizing wipes masks um, anything that you might need while you're out just in case Um, you forget something or someone that you're with forgets something. And I do recognize that COVID-19 precautions are still shifting in response to new variants and developments, and many precautions will vary by state. So if you are struggling with deciding what's best for your loved one in terms of safety, you can speak to your loved one's medical team for additional guidance and support if needed. I do want to switch gears a little bit and talk about long-distance caregiving a little bit more. Um, And... Often we are working with long-distance caregivers, and and these caregivers are anyone anywhere that don't live with their loved one to provide that care. Now, prior to the pandemic, when I was working with long-distance caregivers, they struggled to connect with their loved one. There weren't as many options as there are, or maybe people weren't as comfortable using those virtual options. But now that they've become normalized, it's a little bit easier to connect and be present as a long-distance caregiver. And so... We want to think about what long-distance caregiving tasks may look like for someone. You might want to ask yourself, as a long-distance caregiver, what can I do to help? This might be helping schedule medical appointments, managing prescription refills, um, assisting with finances if that's a strength for you. You can offer to be a point person for certain things like managing insurance, um, bills, you know, those that are, are long distance caregiving are often really great at providing emotional support. And if they're able to travel, they might also be able to provide respite care. Um, they can help with grocery shopping from afar, uh, organizing grocery shopping, organizing meal delivery, maybe coordinating family meetings, keeping friends and family updated and informed, right? And as as someone that is maybe, maybe you are a primary caregiver managing a long distance caregiver that's helping, you'll want to keep a list of these tasks, right? Because oftentimes people will ask you, what can I do to help? What can I do from across the country? How can I be of support? Um, And so you'll have that list ready to assign as needed. Um, Dr. Haberman also spoke about the guidelines for telehealth appointments. So now as a long distance caregiver, you can request to participate in telemedicine appointments, to take notes and ask questions but of course, you do have to make sure to get permission to, from the patient and the medical team to participate in that call. But that is another option for those that are long distance caregiving. I mentioned a little bit earlier that I would talk about you know, some self-care and stress management tips. So I wanna start by sharing an oxygen mask anecdote, which you might be familiar with. But you know, when you're on a plane and the cabin pressure drops, they tell you to put on your oxygen mask first before helping anyone next to you, including a loved one, including a child, including an elderly person. And this is really to prevent you from passing out, right? This is to prevent you something from happening to you so that you can help others. I use this anecdote because if you pass out, you can't help anybody else. And as a caregiver, if you're not taking care of yourself, you can't expect to be able to take care of your loved one. So what is taking care of yourself even look like? That does vary from person to person, but simply I want to talk about staying on top of basic needs, right? And I'm talking very basic, drinking enough water, making sure you are eating regularly, trying to prioritize sleep when possible, trying to be active when possible, right? But in order to stay on top of those needs, you also need to implement some self-check-ins. Ask yourself, how am I feeling? What do I need? how can I meet that need, right? We need to remember that emotional health is just as important as physical health. You know, this needs to be taken care of every day. So what can you do each day to support your emotional health? If you were prescribed a blood pressure medication, you would take that every day to manage your blood pressure. And so now we're talking about what could you do every day, whether it be going outside for five minutes to take a walk and breathing fresh air, um, journaling, utilizing prayer or meditation, really thinking of ways to build resilience, especially in these difficult times. You know, ask yourself, what are my resiliency strategies? We we all have had to develop some because of the pandemic. So really ask yourself, what's worked for me? Um, Do you love to listen to music, move your body and dance, express yourself through art? You can paint, you can draw, you can make something. You can spend time with a pet. Remember, giving love and receiving love from pets can decrease anxiety and help release both feel-good hormones. Um, I mentioned you know, prayer and meditation, use, using visualization or journaling, right? And I know that these are a lot of, um, of simple exercises, but they're just some strategies to help cope and manage stress. But remember that creating your, your coping toolbox, as I like to call it, may look a lot like trial and error in the beginning, it may take, you know, trying a few different coping skills in order to see what's really going to work the best for you. And that's okay. You might need to be patient as you explore different ways to manage your stress. And, of course, there is professional support out there. There is peer support out there. And it's important to build your support network and lean on others, especially those that understand the caregiving experience. Um, Cancer Care has many caregiver support uh, services and resources that Dr. Messner will talk about after this, but it's important to really remember that you are not alone in your experience. There are many other people that have similar experiences that can help you decrease your sense of isolation, can help foster support and connection. And so remember, reach out, ask for help, and build out your support network. And that's really, you know, those are some things that will really help build that resiliency, decrease the sense of isolation, and foster community and connection among caregivers. So I just want to thank you so much for your time to get today, and I'll turn this back to Dr. Messner.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Paul. That was really outstanding and just really a wonderful presentation and really, um, you know, really addressing so many of the issues of that caregivers address, their stresses, and also um, self-care tips, just excellent. So I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And um, I'm just going to say a few words actually now about Cancer Care Services. Um, so um, Cancer Care is a national organization providing a host of free programs and services um, for for many of you on the call today. And, um, and we, so we can be part of that network of support that you have. Um, some of you may already use us for that network of support, but some of you may not. So what do our services look like? Well, many of you may want to contact us and call our hope line. It's an 800 number. And um, that 800 number, you'll get to speak with one of our oncology social workers. We have over 40 oncology social workers on staff, and and each one is scheduled to be on the call, um, to take the incoming calls. And so when you call, you'll immediately be connected to an oncology social worker. And usually people come with a question or concern that they may have, which our social worker will address, and then they'll also go over with you all the other services we offer. So we do offer support, a chance to really talk with one of our oncology social workers. We also offer uh, case management services, which means that if for some reason we don't have what you need, we will then connect you, our case management staff will connect you to a resource. Let's say you're having issues around food, not being able to afford food or your mortgage or rent, um, the, the case manager will assist you virtually to go to either place in your, in your city, in, in your state, or nationally to get the service that you need. We also offer, and they'll stay with you until that's, that, that problem is resolved. That's the wonderful thing about them. Um, the other thing is that we do offer both practical, financial, and uh, co-payment assistance. And that's really very helpful to people um, uh, because it really, at this time that actually throughout cancer care's history, it's been very important to, for people to get be able to get something very practical. And, and really, financial assistance has been very, very key for many people. Um, and particularly the copayment assistance, which is a larger grants to help with your treatments. We also offer online support groups, which lots of people like because those groups occur not. In real time, but they actually are operative. You can post any time of the day or night, and they are facilitated by an oncology social worker as well. And we also have coping circle groups, which are smaller groups in which people can talk to each other about some of the emotional and practical concerns that they may have in coping with cancer, with a specific type of cancer, or with um, a, um, an emotional concern that they may have. I should say about the online support groups that they're actually, um, there are lots of them, and they're available for young adults, older adults, um, middle-aged adults, caregivers, people living with particular types of cancer, um, so that um, they offer a wide variety of services to people. We also offer these educational workshops, and we also have many publications that you can access. And um, we will be sending you tomorrow actually um um a uh, an evaluation of the on survey monkey of the program today and in that evaluation we will include any resource that we mentioned during the program today. So we'll be mentioning the Lymphoma Research Foundation, Cancer CARES, Hopeline, our website, you'll be getting all that information. Anything else that's mentioned during the program today, you'll get those resources and and some more too. So we'd like you to complete the evaluation but also We also appreciate your, your, you'll probably appreciate getting some of these additional resources. And now, before we move on to the Q&A, so get your questions ready, I just have a few questions to ask all of you um, as we, um, before we take the Q&A. So, um, and this again is for people who are live streaming the program. You'll be able to see the questions as I read them and you'll be able to rate your answer to them. And again, we're doing this because it helps us to tailor the programs to best meet your needs. As a result of what i learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the treatment of mantle cell lymphoma in the context of COVID-19 and its variants. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to care for a loved one with mantle cell lymphoma in the context of COVID-19 and experience. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the important role of the caregiver and the challenges of communicating with the healthcare team. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. Um, Next question, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to manage family, friends, partners, and traditions in the context of COVID-19. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now the last question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to utilize recommendations from the healthcare team For self-care and stress management tips as a caregiver, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank all of you who participated in these questions. It really helps us as we plan programs in 2022. And now we have uh, time for questions. I want to ask Sadai to bring all of our speakers on board. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible, and Sadai will explain to you how to queue up for questions. Um, So... Uh, if you'd like to uh, let people know how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many as possible. Thank you, Dr. Messner. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchstone cell
1: phone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the bound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by asking ask a question.
0: And we have a question in front of our online um, participants, and this will be for Dr. Haberman. A few of my family members want to join in the telehealth visit, but we all live in different states. How many people are able to connect to the visit?
1: It's a complicated question, and it depends upon which technology is being used. I love the question. I've had people on a video consult, for instance. So I've had up to four on, and in different states. So I'm not sure there's a limitation, but it would the limitation would be the institution and what, what devices they're they're using and so forth and so uh and whether it be a phone or whether it be video.
0: And I guess the issue, I don't know Sarah, if you want to address this as well. The the issue is um how do people select um those people they want to have on the call and would it be do you want to comment on that?
2: Sure. Yeah. I think, and that's also can be a difficult question, um, especially when many people in the family might want to be on a particular call. So I think it's important for the patient to identify who the primary caregiver is in terms of who needs to be there to to listen to this medical information. Um, And, you know, then also, do you have other point people in your support team? Sometimes, when there are too many people on the call, um, it can get a little bit, like too many cooks in the kitchen, almost. So you definitely want to think of who are the most important people that need to hear this information firsthand, and then who are the people that we can tell afterwards? And that's how you can start to prioritize.
1: I would just add to that, too. At least in my experience, most of the time there's a caregiver who's kind of more in charge, and so the other's are more in the background. Um and so it's uh but you know if they have a specific question that can come out but, but more typically it's been someone's really taken the active role and the others are active listeners, uh would be another way to say it.
0: these are very good points and, and really very helpful to our participants. Thank you, um um, and then this is a question again for Dr Haberman. what are some important things a caregiver should know about um mantle cell lymphoma treatments and side effects to look for the,
1: the 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 most important thing are are if if on treatment are fevers um uh-huh. uh, and shaking chills because that's a sign of infection, and those can be very significant. They can be potentially life-threatening, and patients may need to go into the hospital. Secondly, cough is something I try to be very sensitive about also. Uh, it's become more of an issue in the pandemic, uh, but uh, cough uh, typically is just in a usual viral infection that we're all used to having, and we not, just to make this point, uh, the the first year of the pandemic, there weren't there wasn't much influenza around or other viruses but boy this last uh, 6 8 months there's been far more around and it was actually predicted by healthcare experts and epidemiologists thirdly um just not uh, uh, well the third important area is the abdomen so significant abdominal pain and fourthly the only other thing i say to patients you know something and caregivers if something just isn't right, just kind of make sure you bring it up. And and there are certain individuals who are going to wait till the bitter end. Um, males are a little more characteristic in in doing that, uh, but I think all of us do that a little bit. Uh, but uh, those are the big things.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's excellent. And um, for Ms. Paul, how can I better support my Patient and long-distance caregiving. Are there, are there some programs that work best for connection?
2: That's a great question. Um, so I think it depends on what you're comfortable using in terms of technology, but also connecting with the patient to ask to find out what 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 are the needs, right? Are they are we talking about emotional connection? And if so, you know, scheduling time every week to connect, whether that be on the phone. FaceTime, Zoom, um, whatever mode of uh, technology is comfortable. Setting that time aside and having it be regular can be a really nice way for one the patient to feel supported and um, and heard in their space, but also give them something to look forward to. And for yourself, you know, you are fulfilling a need of emotional support. But I do think that communication, again, as I mentioned earlier when I was speaking about this, is going to be key. Really having a conversation about what the expectations are, how can I help, um, and what the best way to do so is. Um,
0: yeah.
1: Excellent. Thank you. I guess I would just add to that, and this is a little more personal, but my mother's in a nursing home in 93, and the most significant thing we probably ever did as kids since we have uh, were born in certain ways was a call every Thursday at 11 a.m. with all five siblings being on the phone, being on, and then the nursing home bringing up the bringing up the iPad. Um, so patients aren't going to ask for this kind of thing, but it's it, it, the more I've watched other families do the same thing with the Zoom as almost and other uh, proprietary uh, instruments have really... Change the world for some of this. So again, it goes back to my point about just show up and be present.
0: That's a great suggestion. Also, that since you can see you all, that's amazing. That's very good to for people to tuck that out keep that in the mind. It's terrific. Um, and um, so, so probably for Miss Miss Paul, how do I set limits and how do I communicate? with this with the patient and the care team
2: limits and boundaries are can be really challenging they they can be really challenging so i think that remember that boundaries are about you and what your needs are and not about the other person so one coming to terms with what are your limitations what are your uh, your capabilities in this case and then once you have decided them first communicating them to the patient and being really open and honest about what you can and can't do and if there are things that you have to step back from it is helpful to say you know i can no longer do this but i think that we can identify someone else to step in and help with particular things i think when talking with a medical team that can be a little bit more challenging um you know making them understand what your limits are sometimes that's why the patient it's important to have that conversation with the patient first so that you're on the same page, and then you can bring that conversation to the medical team in whatever capacity you need to set boundaries or limits around that. But it is, I do recognize this is very challenging for many people because setting boundaries and setting limits can cause feelings of guilt. Um, but again, if we don't set boundaries uh, to protect our mental health, then we won't, we won't be as effective as caregivers. So it is important to, to find that line.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Um, And um, question for, actually, for both um, Dr. Haberman and Ms. Paul, how is, what is some, what is some important information that should be communicated with the care team that may be overlooked, that may go overlooked? So what is some important information that should be communicated with the care team that may be overlooked?
1: I'll take the first step I guess I think um, from an experiential perspective not from any documentation or literature um, most physicians aren't very careful about understanding home where someone lives that is even you know upstairs on the main floor um, other other issues and other dynamics um, and just Thinking back, that's a very unique question. I actually, haven't been had this posed before, uh, but that's the first thought that that comes to mind. Um, secondly, um, cognitive issues, so memory deficits. Most patients don't, uh, or their spouses, bring some of that forward. So early dementia, especially, uh, and this can have some significant impacts on approaches and and so forth and on potential plans. So I guess those are my two off-the-cuff responses.
2: Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, This is a great question. I think I would add to that um, understanding challenging family dynamics and communication dynamics in, in families or between the patient and caregiver because it's really important not to assume that certain information will be shared or certain conversations will be had. Um, you know, and oftentimes communication preferences and styles are, are overlooked by the care team. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really important to to take some time to understand how people communicate information with each other. Um, but I think, I think that's one thing I would, I would add.
1: I guess the only other thought about the, the, that comes to mind, um, I misread um, certain roles of potential of of caregivers with ongoing care, and misunderstood had had an inappropriate perception about who the patient most trusts of the members of the family, whether it be spouse, oldest sibling, youngest sibling, middle sibling, uh, that dynamic gets very complicated. Excellent
0: point. And Ms. Paul is that what want to comment on that as well? That is an issue. That's um
2: yeah, I I absolutely agree with that. Um, you know, and that, that, that kind of goes along with the understanding right like communication dynamics and um and not and not assuming. I think it's difficult when there are multiple caregivers. Um and multiple caregiver roles at play and and involved in the care. So really taking the time to ask the patient, you know, who who do you want to know this information and the most information? You know, who is the point person? Is there a point person? Um, I think those are important questions to ask.
0: These are really good questions. I have to say this is our fantastic participants, and we have great speakers to address them. So It's a really wonderful program. And actually, I have to say one of the um, – Participants just wrote, um, not a question. This was the best presentation on self-care given on cancer care. Fantastic. So, so it's, it really is amazing the the um, well the, the way this is working with both the participants and our speakers um, weighing in on things together. It really makes it a very much more of a a nice dialogue amongst everybody. Um, so I, I thank everyone and. Um, Question for Dr. Um, Haberman. Can you tell me about maintenance therapy for mantle cell lymphoma after remission? Um, I'd like to know for my father, who is undergoing chemotherapy now, how do doctors decide who should get special maintenance therapy and who shouldn't? Like a program, uh, this, but.
1: this question is under study right now, and we don't have the best answer. Um, so in, and it depends upon the age of the patient. Uh, at 65, we tend to make a break and move patients more to a bendamustine rituximab upfront approach, and then the standard of care has been maintenance rituximab after that. Uh, in patients under that age, so then the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group trial is trying to address that: whether patients get a transplant or whether they get maintenance rituximab if in a complete. Remission. If they're not in a molecular complete remission, then they would go on to transplant. There are also, I mentioned a couple of the other trials, just trying to use something up front and then utilizing drugs such as rituximab and abrutinib. So my take on that is in a lot of ways we don't know. The other problem is the COVID-19 pandemic. And we know that when we give rituximab or other anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies, that we will blunt the neutralizing antibody response to the virus, and that lasts for six months. And so there is less maintenance therapy being utilized than prior to the pandemic. The ECOG study is still ongoing, and patients are staying on study. And there's been no decision to stop the maintenance. But we we all there is con, there are concerns about uh, how much maintenance and then how intense. Uh, in in we will have very good scientific answers to this question that we haven't had yet up to date.
0: Awesome, thank you. And I I want to, again, I want to thank our speakers and I want to thank our participants. And I'm going to ask our speakers to just um, each um, provide a takeaway for each of you um, before we um, begin to wrap this up. Um, um, So I'm going to ask Dr. Haberman if you just would like to give people your takeaway from you about today's program, and I'll do the same for Ms. Paul as well.
1: And I think that um, this... to understand um where things are in the disease and to have walk away with tremendous hope understand that exercise can really influence quality of life and also improve lymphoma and uh other survival, overall survival uh and lastly there there's so much we can do in this disease and along with Caregivers, uh, it's a much different arena than it ever was even five years ago.
0: Awesome. Thank you. And Ms. Paul? So I think that the takeaway
2: that I would share is that, you know, it's it's not a failure as a caregiver to be stressed. It's part of the process. But it is, um, you know, a, an alert to your body that it's important to learn some coping tools and skills to manage the stress and it's okay to ask for help, and it's okay, you know, to feel overwhelmed with the responsibilities and have a hard time navigating the, the role changes and adapting to to the changes of being a caregiver. But it's it's also important to ask for help. A lot of people have a hard time asking for help because they feel like they can do it or they should be able to do it all on their own. But really, the expectation is not that. The expectation is that to ask for help and to and to be able to receive the support that you need. Excellent.
0: Well, I want to thank us because you've really been uh, really phenomenal. Dr. Haberman, Ms. Paul, you've just been terrific and I want to thank you. Now, I also um, recognize that we have many more questions in queue that we can get to today. Um, so I want to comment about that. So for those of you who asked a question, for those of you who have a question yet to ask, and for those of you who are thinking of a question, we want you to take back your healthcare team um, the questions you asked today. One thing I hope you've learned from today's program is that all your questions are terrific and that your healthcare team will want to help you address them. Now, your healthcare team consists of your physician, but it also consists of an oncology nurse, oncology social worker, patient navigator, financial navigator, and all of those people are available to help you um, with any questions that you may have. So please uh, take your wonderful questions and what you've learned today back to treating health team and let them um, also address your questions as well so you'll get like another answer to your questions if you're going to see this as a role play for your questions to your physicians also um, or to your healthcare team actually. Also, we would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with mental cell lymphoma or any type of lymphoma or cancer. We want you to now know that you're part of a fairly large community of support and we will be sending you in the evaluation that we send you uh, survey monkey evaluation, you'll also be getting um, other resources that you can contact credible resources um, and that's in addition to your healthcare team. We never want to sidestep your healthcare team because again they know the most about you. but we do want you to go to places that have really good information um, that we recommend that you go to for information and help as well. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. I want to thank um, our participants, our speakers. It's been a great program. And I want I wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank
1: you for your participation. This concludes today's workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.